Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 122, A Model Vilayet. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patron, Robert White. Uh, Despite the fact that I recorded the last podcast a couple hours ago, uh, we actually got a new patron in those few hours. So I had the rare opportunity to uh, welcome someone new, even though there's such a little gap. I'm recording these kind of back to back. I'll also mention that this is actually my last episode recording in uh, this current apartment. My wife and I have finally found the apartment that we'll be buying early next year and we're renting in the meantime. It's complicated, but... It's much, it's like more than double the size and I'm finally going to have my own room to have as an office and a place to record. So I'm incredibly excited to uh, get a a more comfortable setup and everything. So uh, thanks for everyone who's supported the show and allowed me to get the good equipment things. I'll probably be getting some sound panels and things like that. And uh, you all make that happen. So thank you so much. And of course, thanks, Robert. Now, last time We covered travel and tourism in 19th century Bulgaria, and I hope you all enjoyed that departure from the narrative, but now we are back to the narrative. In the future, I'm hoping to have more episodes like this, particularly because, uh, as you may have noticed, kind of Bulgarian history in this era is a lot harder to cover chronologically. There's just so many things going on, and I, I do my best to kind of weave them together in a way that really makes sense. But I think, you know, in the future for the rest of this podcast's lifetime, We're probably going to have more of these episodes where we occasionally step back and cover uh, some topic in in a wider kind of view like this. So look forward to that. And if you have any thoughts on it, let me know. But last time in the narrative, two episodes ago, we saw the Uniate Church try and fail to get back on its feet. Meanwhile, Russia attempted to influence an agreement on Bulgarian church independence. However, angry Bulgarians were not making their careful diplomacy very easy. In Serbia, the Bulgarian legion under Rokovsky got its first taste of battle, although Serbia's attempt to expel Ottoman garrisons was ultimately defeated and the legion forced to leave for Romania to continue its revolutionary activities. Lastly, in Romania itself, the new unified government saw a conservative prime minister assassinated, allowing Prince Kuza to appoint a more liberal prime minister and kick off a period of reform. This would begin with Romania taking enormous swaths of land from foreign monasteries. Now today, I want to begin by discussing a man I've hinted to before in more detail. That is Mithat Pasha and his formation of the Danubian Vilayet. Now on the 7th of November, 1864, the Eyalets of Nish, Viden, and Silistra were restructured into the Vilayet of Tuna, i.e. Danube run by Mithat Pasha. Now, we discussed him a bit, but let me refresh our memories about who Mithat Pasha is. At this point, he's a 45-year-old Ottoman official who has spent much of his childhood in Vidin and Lovech, although he's originally from Constantinople. So he's very familiar with Bulgaria. In his adulthood, he's traveled Europe quite widely, uh, obtaining a very good education. He spent some years in the 1850s fighting rampant banditry in the Balkans, and in 1861, he had taken over the Vilayet of Nish and helped reorganize the Ottoman administrative system. 
So he's kind of one of the main leaders of the Tanzimat reform movement within the Ottoman Empire. And again, someone with a background in Bulgaria. Uh, he's apparently of partial Bulgarian descent, spent a lot of his childhood there. And his mission is to really reform substantially how that area is run. So it's time for him to run the Danubian Vilayet. And again, this is a big deal because the goal of the Danubian Vilayet was to operate as a model for others, a kind of showcase, and to demonstrate the impact of Ottoman reforms. Uh, I've included a map of the Vilayet on the website so you can kind of see where it is, but it's essentially the northern half of modern Bulgaria plus northern Dobroja, so all the way up to the mouth of the Danube. It's kind of a big arc. Now, in governing the Vilayet, Midat Pasha was quite progressive and definitely brought more prosperity to these lands. He also integrated Christians into the political and legal running of the region, while at the same time brutally push, putting down independence movements. So, you know, I'll talk about this a more in a bit, but essentially, you know, he brought more prosperity to the people there. He, he was definitely, you know, good for Bulgarians in a lot of ways, but as long as you were not a Bulgarian freedom fighter, in which case he was definitely not good for you. So a, a mixed figure, you know, we see these kinds of folks, right? It's like, I'll, I'll give you the world, you know, I'll, I'll make your lives better, but don't you dare oppose me. Then things will get ugly very quickly. Now, Ruse was made the capital of the Vilayet, which furthered its development. I talked about before how Ruse, before this and the decades before, became a fairly important port city on the Danube and was probably the most European city in Bulgaria at the time. It was sometimes called kind of Little Vienna or Little Paris. Um, it still got a lot of that architectural history. It's a lovely town. And interestingly enough, I mentioned Midhat Pasha had some background there. His father was from Ruse. Now, Scholler, the historian I quoted extensively and kind of based the last episode on, wrote how Mithat Pasha, quote, formally entered Ruse on the 22nd of October, 1864. Rumor has it he arrived incognito some days earlier in order to inspect his future domain unmolested, end quote. Now, the reason Ruse was chosen as the new capital was that, as you'll remember from last time, steamer traffic on the Danube had turned it into an important Ottoman port and a gateway from the Ottoman Empire to the rest of Europe and vice versa. I'll also link to the Wikipedia page on the Danube Vilayet because it has some very, very detailed demographic information from 1865. Uh, and you can really kind of see in that year and some years afterwards what the makeup of this administrative region was. So, for example, it shows that there were about 800,000 men living there. They only counted men in the censuses at that time. So, you know, we can guess roughly double that for the overall population. Of those men, 56% were Bulgarians and 57% were Christians. So, you know, I think that's something we'll, we'll talk about more as we go on. But, you know, the population of Bulgaria back then was far more mixed than it was today. And we'll, we'll discuss kind of how Bulgaria went from that to where we are today. For reference, today Bulgaria is about 84% ethnic Bulgarians and 59% Orthodox Christian. Uh, although, Today, there's a large portion of non-believers, which is why that number hasn't increased very much. In 1865, Muslims were about 40% of the population, while today they're about 8%. So that really shows how many Muslims have you know, left Bulgaria from 1865 until today. And you know, 40 to 8% is a very large shift in the population. 
Now, speaking of Christians and Muslims, the reforms implemented in the Danubian Vilayet meant that, as I kind of alluded to before, Christians were now becoming officials in the administration more than ever. However, it is worth pointing out that these were often emigrants from the West and were less often Bulgarians. So on the one hand, yes, Ottoman administration is more and more opening up to non-Muslims, but it's still that that usually doesn't mean locals. Now, on March the 3rd, 1865, Midat Pasha began the publication of an official newspaper for the Vilayet, simply called Danube. It was released every Wednesday and Sunday and written in both Ottoman and Bulgarian. Now, this is an interesting demonstration of just how differently Midhat Pasha approached this role. After all, it's hard to imagine the Pashas of old starting something like a newspaper to influence public opinion in favor of their policies, but clearly Midhat Pasha saw this as an important step. And as we'll discuss more in the episode, newspapers were popping up everywhere, and just as quickly, governments were trying to put them down. Still, despite the newspaper, while much of what Midhat Pasha did was very popular, there were controversies. Over the course of 1865 and 1866, he developed a project for Ottoman public schools, which would be open to people of all religions. But he had to backtrack after this was met with strong local opposition. My guess is that locals basically didn't want state education for their kids and wanted to continue the the kind of system we're seeing develop where local communities pool together their resources and build their own schools and hire their own teachers. And I'll probably discuss that more in, a, in its own episode. I haven't gone into that much detail about it. But, you know, at this point, education in Bulgaria is very grassroots, very from the bottom up. But on the whole, over the coming years, a combination of agrarian reform, infrastructure development, and public works strongly influenced the lives of many living in the Vilayet. Gavrilova quotes a contemporary who wrote, quote, The pavement in our city is complete. Some narrow lanes are cleared and transformed into streets. The shutters of the shops are cut and neatly standardized. Street lamps are placed and a public garden is laid. End quote. Overall, she points to the paving of streets to reduce dust, the straightening of streets, the installation of street lamps, etc., as having a substantial effect on changing the kind of oriental look of Ottoman towns, which were noted by so many travelers in the earlier decades of the century. You remember, we talked about that last time. But we can't forget that all these reforms were accompanied by an even harsher crackdown on any revolutionary activity. Midhat Pasha governed, you could say, with carrots and sticks. And while the carrots were sweeter than ever, the sticks were also harder and maybe had some spiky bits on them. Indeed, in the final days of 1864, the overall Ottoman government was seeking to crack down. A law passed on December the 31st regulating the publication of everything in the Ottoman Empire was an attempt to crack down on press and pamphlets. The next year, a new Bulgarian newspaper would open in the capital, only to be shut down two years later. And over the coming years, both the Ottoman Empire and Serbia would basically see many newspapers founded and many shut down, as both these governments sought to kind of restrict the expanding power and influence of these publications. Okay, now let's recap a few events from 1864. Lots was happening in Romania. From Bucharest, Rakovsi published a pamphlet in which he revealed his belief that Serbia aimed to annex substantial Bulgarian lands and establish hegemony over the Balkans. This showed just how far Serbia had fallen in the eyes of Bulgarian revolutionaries. Just two years earlier, the first Bulgarian legion had been fighting the Ottomans alongside Serbs 
in Belgrade and with the blessing of the Serbian prince. But now the founder of that legion was effectively denouncing Serbia for being duplicitous and for having, you know, kind of eyes on Bulgaria. In fact, in early 1865, a Bulgarian newspaper in Belgrade, as I alluded to before, was founded and then shut down by the Serbian authorities, showing how they were now determined to crack down on Bulgarian revolutionary and cultural activities, which they had encouraged quite recently. Rakovsky also published a book on the church question. No surprise, it was the big controversy of the day. On that front, around this time, General Nikolai Ignatiev was appointed Russian ambassador in Constantinople and resolved to maintain church unity. To that end, he negotiated an end to the exile of Ilarion Makriopolsky, who returned to Constantinople from Mount Athos. Bulgaria was also facing the results of a humanitarian crisis over the course of 1864. As Russia completed its conquest of the Caucasus, a great influx of refugees was triggered, which threatened the stability of the area and even threatened Mitat Pasha's reforms. Misha Glenny describes the situation this way, quote, Midhat's reforms were undermined by the last great migration into the empire which occurred in 1864 when hundreds of thousands of Circassians abandoned their mountainous strongholds as Russia finalized its conquest of the Caucasus. Their arrival in the empire led to one of the 19th century's greatest humanitarian crises, which never even touched the European conscious. About 400,000 Circassians sought refuge in Anatolia, Bulgaria, and Macedonia. Starving, they headed towards Bulgaria's Danubian border with Romania and the land border with Serbia. Homeless, exhausted, and smitten by smallpox and typhoid, thousands fell ill and died in the open. The unsanitary conditions spread the epidemics among the local Bulgarian and Turkish populations. The Circassians had traveled to the border areas because after the creation of the Danubian Vilayet, Midhat had agreed to an expansion of military forces to defend the new province. The port, lacking money as always, used the influx of refugees as an expedient and declared that the new soldiers would be recruited from the Circassians and Tatars. Both by decree and by force majeure, Christians were evicted en masse from their homes and villages to accommodate the new arrivals. The refugees began to terrorize parts of the countryside and thousands of Christians fled into Romania and some also went to Serbia. The emigre Bulgarian revolutionaries acquired many new recruits. Midhat's efforts to neutralize Bulgarian nationalist sentiment were nullified, end quote. That's a long quote, but I, I thought that, that Glennie did a good job really kind of summarizing what happened here. Now, this was a huge event, and we've seen very similar things before. Remember when Russia conquered uh, Crimea, we saw a similar thing, an influx of Muslim refugees, which tended to commit acts of violence against local Bulgarians in a way to kind of get revenge because, well, they had been abused by Russian Orthodox Christians and these new people over here were Orthodox Christians. And so even though the Bulgarians really had nothing to do with it, they were still often kind of the, the people on the receiving end. And I think we, we, the, we do have to remember though, that this is a, a two-sided thing, right? That these refugees have just had their homes taken away from them. They've just you know, been violently removed from their homelands and are, you know, refugees. They're, they're seeking safety and a new home and the Ottomans are letting them in. But the Ottomans, I think, are probably the ones to blame. And instead of treating this as a kind of refugee humanitarian thing and, and trying to kind of keep the peace, they're looking for, okay, how can we 
take advantage of this. And as we saw, you know, gain new soldiers and uh, avoid spending any money. And essentially, you know, I, th I would say both the Bulgarian civilian population and those refugees themselves were the victims of those policies. So, but as it also mentioned, this was very big because this led to an, a big boost in recruits and support for those Bulgarian revolutionary activities. So, you know, at the same time, through the efforts of people like Mithat Pasha, the Ottomans are trying to show Bulgarians that, hey, you don't need to become independent. You don't need to leave, to leave the Ottoman Empire. Look, we're modernizing. We're going to give you all these new rights. It's all great. No, no need to have all this revolutionary activity and to rebel. But at the same time, the Ottomans are quite dramatically undermining that argument by doing things like this. So again, we're seeing kind of the effect of all these geopolitics and, and how you know, repeatedly over the last few centuries, the expansion of the Russian Empire has had such an enormous impact on Bulgaria by leading to these subsequent kind of waves of refugees and by taking in Bulgarian immigrants and by kind of funding and affecting Bulgarian revolutionary movements and cultural movements. It's it's a fascinating kind of interplay. Okay, so as Glennie mentioned, this was making it very hard for Mithat Pasha in the Ottomans to get Bulgarians on their side. And we know that, you know, that the deal that the Ottomans were kind of offering here, that, you know, we'll bring you prosperity and we'll reform and everything as long as you don't rebel, that still appealed to many, especially the Chorbaji elites. But it seems that appeal is failing with the general population, or at least it looks that way. And certainly those Bulgarian revolutionaries believe it. But, you know, at this point in, in Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire, there are certainly no, uh, um, you know, polls. There's no public opinion polls or something like that. So it's very difficult to actually see what the average person thought. So that gap between what people assume the average person will think and what they actually think will be important going forward. Okay, now, speaking of radical action, the last event of 1864 to mention was just one of those. Once again, Prince Kuza of Romania was deeply frustrated that his prime minister was not allowing him to implement the reforms that he saw as necessary. So that year he mounted a military coup and pushed through a series of agrarian reforms. The feudal relationship by which the peasants had been kind of forced to provide labor for a specific time of year was abolished. 30% of the cultivated land of the country was carved into small plots and handed over to more than half a million peasants. However, this reform was to have terrible unforeseen consequences. The peasants soon learned that their small plots simply weren't profitable, forcing them to work on boyar lands under terrible conditions in order to stay above water financially. As a result, a reform intended to equalize society actually widened the gulf between the richest and the poorest, leading to further instability. Now, this is something we're going to talk about a lot over the remainder of this podcast, or at least the, the next few uh, decades covering agrarian reform. Remember, at this time, the overwhelming majority of people in the Balkans are farmers. Uh, and, you know, there's still huge inequities in terms of who owns the land, and governments from Bulgaria to basically every other Balkan government will face huge questions of how and whether to implement agrarian reform, and the way in which they go about that will have dramatic consequences. As far as I can tell, Romania is the first of the new newly independent Balkan states to implement some very dramatic agrarian reform, and so far it's basically blowing up in their faces and showing why 
this is so important, but also really so dangerous. And there, there's so many potential pitfalls. Okay, now to early 1865. At the beginning of the year, the patriarch made well, made further attempts at church reconciliation. Aksenti Veleshki was in poor health, and the patriarch sent messages to offer him repentance if he could be repentance and that he could be buried with full honors if he yeah, repented on his previous thing and supported the patriarchate, but he rejected the offer. And his will noted that he died faithful to the people and unshaken in his beliefs concerning the importance of a national Bulgarian church. So again, the patriarchate is making attempts at reconciliation, but like they're not really good attempts because ultimately the patriarchate is very unwilling to compromise. And so, you know, I think we're seeing time and time again, their attempts at reconciliation are, but maybe you could still agree with us and and do everything we say. Uh, And it's not really getting them anywhere. Around the same time, Ali Pasha suggested that the patriarch choose between three options for resolving the Bulgarian question. Because at this point, you know, the Ottomans themselves are very interested in this question getting resolved because it's leading to a lot of instability and infighting and it's just messy. Remember, I've talked about this before, that the Ottoman Empire as a whole is not that interested in sort of converting everyone to Islam or something. Their primary concern is everyone paying their taxes, not rebelling, and just sort of being quiet and peaceful and doing their jobs and getting to work, right? And this is really showing that. You know, they don't really have much of a dog in this fight. They just want everything resolved. Although, okay, maybe they do have a dog in the fight. They generally support the patriarchate because it supports them. They have a very kind of, they have close ties, you could say. Now, the the three options that were given to the patriarchate from uh, the, the prime minister, basically Ali Pasha, right? The grand vizier. The first of those options was for Bulgarians to choose a bishop to govern their own church affairs, but that bishop would still be dependent on the patriarchate. So kind of a semi-autonomous Bulgarian bishopric within the patriarchate. The second option was for the Bulgarians to vote and decide what should happen. The third option was to resolve everything according to the current Bulgarian demands, basically just give in to them and give them an independent church. The patriarch called an assembly to choose between these options and... No surprise when the committee assembled a few months later, there were only two Bulgarians on it, though I couldn't find a record of how many were on the committee, but it seems implied that the Bulgarians made up a tiny fraction of them. But still, efforts were being made. There was pressure from both Russia and the Ottomans because both states wanted a solution. In fact, in November 1865, Ambassador Ignatiev pressured the patriarch to begin negotiations with the Bulgarian advocates of church independence. After mutual concessions, they agreed on six main Bulgarian aims, and these were presented to the patriarch for approval, but no big surprise, he just flat out rejected this. Within days, the Ottoman government got involved again and attempted to maintain a fragile truce between the Bulgarians and the Greeks. Ali Pasha called Bulgarian representatives to Constantinople and tried to convince them that despite the response from the patriarchate, negotiations must continue. Now, Interestingly, over the course of 1865, the British government tasked two consuls to travel through Bulgarian lands and familiarize themselves with the population and their condition. As we know from the last episode, this definitely wouldn't have been an easy journey, but it's interesting and important uh, because, as we know, it's very important that Bulgaria be familiar to the West and that the West hopefully take some interest and some sympathy towards the Bulgarian cause, and so the British government being proactive on this is a very good development. 
In Sleven, some of Midhat Basha's work was paying off, as government subsidies allowed for a textile factory owned by one Dobri Yelaskov to expand to 100 weaving machines and employ 330 workers. In Braila, another Dobri, this time Vunikov, founded the Bulgarian Theatrical Society, which began putting on plays within the year. But as far as bigger events at this time, I think we can note the founding of an organization called the Young Ottomans. Now, the members of this organization were largely intellectuals who believed the Tanzimat reforms had given too much to Christians at the expense of Muslims, though they did respect European technology, education, economics, etc. In essence, they wished to combine these European you know, progressive elements with an Ottoman Islamic identity and not one which was kind of open to non-Muslim members of Ottoman society. They also desired a representative government to limit the Sultan's authority and universal citizenship to all subjects. So, you know, so in essence, what they wanted was, you know, a Muslim dominated modern kind of uh, constitutional monarchy in the European mold. Now, while this group was pressuring the Sultan, actually two of his nephews ultimately joined it, showing that even within the Ottoman political elite, there was fracturing between those who opposed all reforms, those who wanted reforms leading to a more religiously equitable and diverse state, and those who wanted reforms along Islamic principles like the young Ottomans. Okay, so at this point, I want to do a quick recap of where we are. In Romania, Prince Kuza is exercising more control after the coup and pushing through reforms that are proving disastrous, and as a result, his popularity is slipping. Russia and the Ottomans are frantically attempting to arbitrate a peace between the Greeks and Bulgarians over the church issue, but to no avail. Mithat Pasha is transforming the Danube, the Danube Vilayet, through rapid modernization and reforms, but refugees from the Caucasus are causing chaos and thwarting his plans. As a result, support for radical Bulgarian organizations bent on independence is growing. Now, let's return to Romania. Elites were coming to the conclusion that even though technically the unification of Romania was only during Cusa's lifetime, if this unification was going to be secured permanently, Romania needed a foreign prince. Every other Balkan state except Serbia would eventually come to the same conclusion. So, there was something to it. Still, the only other Balkan state with a foreign prince at this point was Greece, and just a few years earlier, their king, or prince, Otto, had been exiled in a coup. This was partly because Otto was unpopular, but also because he had not produced an heir, and many feared the instability his death would bring. He was replaced by Prince William of Denmark, who became King George I of Greece. So, the Romanians were resolved to find a prince which would link them to one of the great powers. In February of 1866, Cusa was himself overthrown in a coup, and they say he went quietly with uh, the bottle and his mistress. Now, the conspirators set about searching the continent for a suitable candidate. Several men rejected the offer, no doubt with Otto and Cusa's experience on their minds, until a man named, and I'm, pardon me if I don't get this pronunciation correctly, Carol de Hohenzollern Sigmaringen from a branch of the Prussian royal family, the Hohenzorn. So that's what you really need to know. He's a Hohenzorn. His choice was confirmed by a plebiscite and by the great powers, because France desired a stronger Romania, which it could influence. Prussia, of course, supported one of its own royals getting the job. 
and their combined pressure was enough to overcome any problems from Russia or the Ottomans. Still, it all wasn't more, it all wasn't smooth sailing. There was substantial opposition in Moldova, and about 60,000 Russian troops were on the border poised to invade should they get the call. In essence, Romania stood on the precipice of civil war as Moldovans feared losing power and influence within the state, and Orthodox Romanians worried about the prospect of a Catholic monarch. This is a problem we'll see repeated in Bulgaria, where, you know, these are Orthodox Balkan countries, they want a foreign prince, but there aren't too many Orthodox foreign princes going around, so it gets tricky. But despite all these obstacles, Carol managed to get into power, particularly because he had the backing of a pro-unity army. He quickly moved to mollify Moldovian concerns, and the great power intervention was narrowly avoided, but in an interesting manner. All the immediate neighbors were against this, with, with Austria, but all of them couldn't do anything about it, in essence. Austria was concerned about war with Prussia, Russia didn't want the Ottomans to gain influence, and the Ottomans couldn't oppose the Russians on the matter, so it's kind of complicated, but in essence, three no's turned into a single yes, is kind of how it worked out. At the same time, in Bucharest, Bulgarian revolutionary activity was picking up. By the in initiative of one Ivan Kasabov, and after discussion with the Romanian government, the secret Bulgarian committee was founded in Bucharest around this time. Their goal was to free Bulgaria, no surprise there, and they established rules and a plan for how this would occur, and foresaw creating a network of secret committees throughout Romania, Serbia, southern Russia, and Bulgaria. The organization was meant to prepare a revolt and would eventually see a larger kind of united Balkan action against the Ottoman government. The Romanian government supported them financially, and after Romania managed to settle their disputes with the Ottomans, though the committee temporarily had to cease operations. So kind of like with Serbia, when, when they need to kind of mull things over with the Ottomans and, and normalize relations, they have to kind of put down all the revolutionaries they've been funding. But still they're more or less allowed to continue. In 1867, this revolutionary committee initiated several very loud anti-Ottoman campaigns to popularize the Bulgarian political question. They also had their own newspaper, which was called Narodnost, or kind of nationality, if you want to think of it that way, or nation. Now, the last thing I'll mention here is the completion of the Ruse Varna railway line, which I alluded to at the end of the last episode. So, it was completed at this time, but it wasn't exactly well built. The train tracks were not reinforced well, and the line took a very long, circuitous route because, well, they didn't want to have to pay to build any bridges or tunnels. And Scholler points out that the British company which built it was paid by the mile, so it actually made perfect financial sense to avoid any expensive infrastructure and build a longer route instead. Although this line was completely disconnected from many others, uh, and it only had one track, meaning a train could only go in one direction at a time, greatly limiting its capacity, the backers of the project still had high hopes. But those hopes were dashed. The line was a commercial failure from the start, both for passengers and for cargo. Ultimately, the line, which was built and managed so poorly, just didn't have the wherewithal to survive or really thrive. Travelers largely described the trains as almost toy-like and the ride as miserably uncomfortable. Delays were frequent and accidents occurred almost from the onset. It was nice and did help some VIP guests who used it, including the Sultan and the newly elected King Carol, but
Overall, we could say it wasn't a very auspicious beginning for Bulgarian rail or for Mithat Pasha's modernization efforts. And that's where I'll leave things today. The Ottoman Empire is modernizing, but with substantial hiccups. Bulgarian revolutionary activities are picking up. Romania is now united under a German prince, but whether he can calm the situation and unite his country remains to be seen. Next time, wars will reshape the map of Europe and put even more pressure on the Ottomans to resolve the Bulgarian church issue. Things are accelerating and, well, they're going to get interesting. So check it out. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, and I'll catch you in the next one.